everyone. Welcome to another episode of CBIA's BizCast. I'm Shannon King, and it's another beautiful sunny day in Connecticut. I do hope everyone listening is staying safe, optimistic, and of course, healthy. This morning, I talked with Paul Pescatello, Senior Counsel and Executive Director of Connecticut's Bioscience Growth Council, representing the work of the biotech and pharmaceutical industries in the state. This conversation is very timely. I asked Paul about what researchers have discovered about this new strain of coronavirus, what different treatments are being used to help patients successfully recover, where the vaccine is currently, and how the Connecticut bioscience community is working overtime to study this virus and find a cure as quickly as possible. During a time of much uncertainty, understanding the science and the data about COVID-19 can really empower us all to make smart decisions together about how to combat this pandemic. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So, Paul, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. So you run the Bioscience Growth Council, which is housed under CBIA. Um, so you are very involved with the bioscience community in Connecticut. And um, the first question I have is, what have researchers discovered so far about the virus and the disease it causes? Well, I guess the most heartening thing is that it's, you know, it's, it's called the novel coronavirus. And that just means it's a new version of something of the coronavirus um, type of, of infection. And so um, we know a lot about coronaviruses generally. And so it's, it's um, you know, really uh, obviously a lot to deal with right now. But in terms of finding a vaccine, figuring out a vaccine and finding treatments and even cures for an infection, um, it's something that's, that's very doable. And I think scientists really understand that now. And um, they're working, you know, really hard to, to make it happen. What are other different coronaviruses? Um, so a lot of the um, previous, um, you know, pandemics and many pandemics have been versions of the coronavirus, of, of a coronavirus. Have they all been... Uh, similar to this virus, um, especially with the symptoms such as um, particularly respiratory issues um, is what I've seen and what I believe, you know, the the healthcare community has seen the most issues with for patients. Right. I mean, there's been a range of symptoms across different age groups. So I think, I think that's something that's still, you know, under investigation and people are trying to, scientists are trying to figure out, um, the symptomatic profile of the virus, but it does seem like respiratory symptoms, um, severe respiratory symptoms in certain patients um, are unique to this virus, or I would say, I guess, relatively unique to this virus. Many, um, you know, many seasonal flus and viruses cause respiratory symptoms, but this one does seem to be particularly severe. Right. Uh, and what are the populations that are having, um, unfortunately, the most um, difficulty in recovering or ultimately dying from the virus? Uh, what are the populations that are most at risk right now? So certainly the elderly um, and different cutoff ages, you know, have been applied. So some people some researchers are saying, you know, people over 55, over 60, over I think it's more 65 and 70 seems to be the, um, the cutoff where, where there's a 
you know, significant um, diligence to um, make those make the, that population group understand the risks and be very careful about their exposure to the virus. And then um, certainly um, people of all ages uh, with any underlying condition that would um, make it more difficult for them to fight off an infection. So certainly people with diabetes or heart disease, people who've had cancer, um, anybody um, that is currently using an immunosuppressant drug um, to fight off other things such as arthritis um, or even cancer um, should be very, very careful in their exposure to the uh, coronavirus. Do people with um, underlying or pre-existing respiratory conditions, are they having a more difficult time because uh, this virus does attack the respiratory system? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's fair to say. So what are the different treatments that have been successfully used on patients? Obviously, there is not a vaccine right now, but there are different combinations um, of medications that have been used to successfully help patients get over this virus a little faster. So can you talk about a couple different combinations of those medications that have worked? Sure, sure. So there, there are a lot of different uh, fronts. And I would just quickly say that um, just to make the distinction between treatments for COVID-19 and vaccine. So a vaccine is to prevent a person from getting the infection to begin with. So it's, it's, it's ramping up your body's own immune system to ward off getting an infection versus a treatment, which is, is something designed to, to help you um, recover once you have an infection. And so they're really, I, I'm, I'm looking at my notes and they're really about um, four different, I would say there are four different types of treatment areas that are under investigation right now. Certainly the, the first one I'll mention, just because I think in some sense it's more in the news than anything else, are the anti-malarial drugs that President Trump has, um, has touted as being effective. And they do show some, in, anecdotally, they show some, some promise, but um, there certainly needs to be a lot more investigation. And I think the scientific community is, um, you know, much more uh, conservative about uh, wanting to test these drugs, and they are being tested right now, the anti-malarials, to see what kind of um, efficacy they have in treating the disease. The, um, the second um, class of drugs that I think shows the most promise are um, antiviral drugs that have been developed over the years, and in, those, in, those, in that class of drugs, there are two kind of subsets, and the first are the um, HIV drugs. Um, HIV antiviral drugs, which have been obviously, um, you know, very, very effective in treating HIV and making it essentially a, you know, kind of a chronic condition to be managed over a lifetime versus a death sentence as it used to be 20 or 25 years ago. Unfortunately, those HIV drugs, HIV antivirals, so far haven't shown a lot of efficacy in treating COVID-19. Um, on the other hand, uh, there is one drug, and there are probably several others similar to it, but one in particular, uh, a company called Gilead, has a drug, um, Remdesivir, which is used to treat Ebola. And that shows uh, a, a significant efficacy, and it's undergoing a lot of testing uh, right now. And the, um, the third class of drugs um, are something called plasma therapies, which essentially um, try to isolate antibodies uh, developed uh, by patients who've had the COVID-9 infect infection and have recovered and use those antibodies in, to treat people who are, have an ongoing infection. 
and then probably you know more promising in terms of just the having the capacity and the volume to treat large numbers of people are companies that are working on synthetic versions of those antibodies to treat to treat patients. Um, and the last uh, group I'll mention um, are immunosuppressant drugs. So ironically, um, drugs that suppress the immune system seem to have some value in treating some patients in the late stages of um, COVID-19 infection when they have a severe infection and um, their body in some sense has worked too well in fighting the COVID-19 infection and it, their, their immune systems are in overdrive and that's, that's what's causing their um, uh, you know, severe respiratory and lung issues. And so tamping down their immune system at that late stage seems to have some value, again, in some patients. And so uh, selective use of those immunosuppressant drugs uh, seems to be having value. But all of them are under, under um, you know, research right now, and, and uh, they're not widely available. But the, um, the way drugs are tested, that, you know, the two things are safety and efficacy. They have to be shown to be safe first, and then they have to be shown to actually work to be, to be effective. And that, unfortunately, takes a lot of time, although we re- we're really trying to shorten that time for COVID-19. Yeah, certainly. That's all really, really interesting. Um, so maybe going back to the actual vaccine. So where is the vaccine um, in its clinical trial or its lifespan, I should say? Where is it in its lifespan right now? And could it be available in time to combat a potential second wave. I think I think it's possible, but but unlikely. I mean, so um, you know, we're we're all familiar with the annual flu vaccine, which is developed each, you know, every twelve months. There's there's a new flu vaccine to combat the current flu, um, but it it generally takes at best um, a year to eighteen months, you know, at best, to develop a vaccine, and and as importantly, to get it. Um, to get the manufacturing capacity in place for the vaccine. So remember, in this case, for COVID-19, we're talking about literally billions of doses, not, not tens of millions of doses or even hundreds of millions of doses, but, ten, but billions of doses. And so e- even if a vaccine were developed tomorrow, building out the manufacturing capacity to produce that vaccine in those quantities is a, is a huge you know, warlike effort itself, um, and remember, it's not just—it's not just the physical, you know, uh, laboratories to do it, but it's the the, the ingredients for the um, for the vaccine that have to be sourced and put together. And often, vaccines—they're um, in some sense, um, you know—I don't know if "grown" is exactly the right word, but they're—it it takes. Um, you don't just mix the ingredients together and you have the vaccine. They have to so to speak, incubate for a while. And um, again, that takes time. So I think so. I think we're well along the way in kind of understanding the coronavirus, this particular coronavirus, and therefore finding mechanisms to combat it through a vaccine. But we haven't, and there's several that are under um, clinical trials right now. I mean, as of last week, there were three vaccines in clinical trial. I think there are more now. Um, and I'll just quickly say there, there are three stages of clinical trial, and that, again, that adds to the time constraints in, in getting it to patients. 
their phase one is a very uh, small trial, small number of patients, just to test safety. That's the most important thing first. Phase two is a somewhat larger trial, but we're talking, you know, 10, 20, 100 people at most um, in, in those phase one and phase two trials, uh, maybe in phase two more than that, but certainly not in the thousands. Um, phase two begins to test efficacy and dosing. And once that's figured out in that phase two trial, um, that assuming phase one that you've, you've established safety, that in phase two, you're looking for what, uh, what dose works to actually combat whatever um, disease or condition you're trying to combat. And, um, and then you go to phase three where you're testing it in large numbers, thousands of patients to continue to see efficacy and safety. And um, again, that takes, that takes a lot of time to do that. And, and so, um, and it's very, very costly. Um, but anyway, to, to, to get back to your, your initial question. So um, a year to 18 months would be a very fast track for um, a new vaccine. You've mentioned before um, there have been a few studies about the transmission of the coronavirus, and I believe the um, most direct way to transmit the virus is through uh, coughing and sneezing, so those respiratory droplets. Um, Yeah. So, and I know that there have been... Um, guidances that if um, you are out in public or you have to be out in public to wear a respirator, some kind of face mask um, to prevent that spread either from another person or from yourself to another person. Um, Are there any more, uh, are there any other things that people can do to um, limit the transmission or the possible transmission of the virus as they're, you know, if they do have to be at work or they do have to go out to grocery shop or what have you, uh, what other things can people do to uh, prevent that transmission? Well, certainly they're right. Certainly now the, uh, the CDC has now recommended that, that everyone wear masks when they're out in public. Um, and certainly the social distancing that we're all experiencing right now, keeping six feet away from others. Um, but as um, uh, you know, as has been recommended, and uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has, has reiterated over and over again, you know, constant hand washing is is so important. Um, and um, I think I think that's that's the number one thing um, you can do. And 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 of course, um, the, the one of the other rules that people mention is think of it as keeping your hands below your shoulders, meaning so that you're whatever you touch, you, you're never touching your face in any, any place where you could have a conduit for the infection to get into your body, like your eyes, nose, mouth, ears. Yeah, certainly. That's good to know. So last question I have for you. So looking at the data and the science of the spread of the virus uh, throughout Connecticut over the next two months, um, different parts of the state are going to apex or hit their peak at different times. So what else is the bioscience community in Connecticut doing to help um, the healthcare and the business community. So one of which is the healthcare community is over capacity and they're um, severely strapped for resources. And the business community on the other side, they're um, relatively shut down in some industries. So what is the bioscience community uh, doing to help those two different communities? Sure. So 
uh, obviously the, the, the number one thing um, that would help both the, you know, the business community and the healthcare world would be a vaccine or a treatment or a cure for COVID-19. So the biopharma industry is doing what it does best. You know, number one, it's doing what it does best, which is research and development to find those, to figure out that vaccine, get it to market, find treatments and cures and get them to market. So that's the number one thing. But it's, and I would say just about every CBIA Bioscience Growth Council member is involved in some way in that research and development effort. Um, Johnson & Johnson, for example, has, is already putting in place manufacturing capacity for a, a 1 billion doses of um, vaccine once it's developed and has also pledged to make that vaccine available at cost um, on a nonprofit basis to patients. Um, other, other members like Medtronic um, down in the New Haven area, area has made its, the, the design specifications for its ventilator um, available generally so that others can uh, replicate and make copies and make available to hospitals and healthcare workers uh, more ventilators. Uh, so it's um, it's a pretty um, pretty amazing effort on the part of the biopharma community to to combat this virus. Yeah, absolutely. That's really really great to hear that um, Connecticut businesses, obviously in the bioscience um, industry, but also all the other industries, particularly manufacturing throughout Connecticut, they're really stepping up and staying innovative to uh, the crisis that's going on right now. It's uh, you know, it's really tough times, but it is it is a silver lining to hear these really great stories. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much for talking with us for a few minutes. And uh, as this virus continues to make its way through the state and uh, through the rest of the country, uh, I hope we can have you back for some updates. Well, thank you. For the latest COVID-19 information, visit CBIA.com. Follow us on Twitter at CBIA News and on Facebook, Call us anytime at 860-244-1900. Stay safe out there.